Nicole Strickland. I have been fascinated with the unknown and paranormal realms since childhood. After a profound experience with my grandmother's spirit 20 years ago, I have been on a quest to observe, study, investigate, and communicate with the afterlife and beyond. It's been an ongoing journey of exploration and discovery, one that has taught me how mortality and the spirit world are forever bonded through the bales of time. Good evening, everyone. I hope you're all doing well, staying healthy, feeling good, all that good stuff. So, of course, tonight's Thursday night, another episode of the Afterlife Chronicles right here on WLTKDB. That's WLTKDB.com. You guys know the website by now. And, of course, I'm your host, Nicole Strickland. I'm going solo tonight, which I like to do every now and then, which is fine with me. We're going to talk a little bit about paranormal investigation and research and all of that. But I do want to recap the show before Mind Realm of Darkness with uh, Rini Rodriguez and Ashley Moreno. They had on uh, Matt from Warner Paranormal Explorer Society, and they discussed the Amityville Horror. Now, I don't think there's a paranormal investigator out there that does not know about the Amityville Horror. So if you missed that episode, it'll be archived for you. And Matt, toward the end, I was talking about a location, I believe, in Massachusetts off the top of my head. I just blanked on the name of it. But you can find that by watching the show. In Massachusetts, he's very into historical preservation and uh, got into the, the importance of history and how that connects with the paranormal because I like to view it as history is the bridge between our world or excuse me, the paranormal is the bridge between our world and history. So uh, he was talking all about the historical preservation of the, the site that he works at. And it reminds me of what the San Diego Paranormal Research Society does with the Rancho Buena Vista Adobe since 2011. And since then, and it, and it had me reflect on this, since 2011, we've been doing these tours and they are fundraising tours. And that's the important aspect of it. People can come, get a glimpse of the site's history, right? They can uh, participate in a how we run it as a live paranormal investigation, get a little, little idea of what we do, a little dowsing rod session, uh, collective EVP session, little spirit box session. But importantly, the proceeds go back into the adobe. So if little renovations need to be done, maybe some new flowers and plants need to be planted, that money helps. And so it got me thinking on that. So I just wanted to uh, bring that up. But again, that episode was fantastic. All of their episodes are great. You could, it'll be archived for you. So make sure to watch it because the Amityville horror is one of those situations. I think we all want to know exactly what happened, but I really honestly don't think we're ever going to figure it out. And so obviously I hope that the DeFeo family, of course, is resting in peace of course. So very tragic, very tragic situation. Okay, I forgot to announce too that uh, two new shows coming up. Barnaby Jones, I believe his show is debuting. You can just go to WLTKDB.com and, and, and figure out all of this. June 16th, I think with Sheeton Noir. And then of course, Kenneth Drake is coming out with his show, Voices of the Dead, I believe. And that's going to be Thursdays after this show starting in July. So two new shows coming out. And then, of course, we have another one coming in the fall as well with Brandon Wainwright. So good stuff happening. Make sure to check out the website. Uh, 
It's great uh, design by Todd Bates. It's amazing. So you can get lost on it because I know I have. <laughs> so, so anyways, all right. Segwaying into tonight's episode, I think this is going to be maybe a maybe a two parter. I'm thinking, and so it's it's designed, I guess, for those that are interested in maybe getting involved in the paranormal investigation field, maybe those that have some experience in it, and even for veteran researchers like many of us, just kind of gentle reminders and things like that. So I thought I'd talk a little bit about, okay, paranormal investigation and research. So a lot of people think about when, when you hear that, some people think about just the four corners of what, what goes on in the actual investigation. So from the time that you're there from, let's say, 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. and that's it. But then you kind of have to start thinking about, okay, well, what, what happens with all before that and after that? What are some other things that we should know and be reminded of when getting involved in this field? So I do want to start out with the whole concept because you hear this of science versus pseudoscience. Some researchers feel that the field is nothing but a pseudoscience. Others feel that it can definitely uh, become a science one day. I'm one of those that I, I don't, I agree. I don't think that this field should just be classified as a pseudoscience. I think that we can and should adopt the scientific method little by little and see how it applies. And so, you know, when you think about the scientific the method, the five steps of it, you make an observation, you ask a question, you form a hypothesis, right? Remember this from like grade school or an explanation of, of what you're trying to test. And then you make a prediction, hoping that that hypothesis is correct. And then you test the prediction. So those are like the five steps. So I think that in the paranormal, I think that we can start adopting that. And if more people did that, I think we would find more themes and more pieces of the puzzle to connect. So that's one little thing I wanted to mention about science versus pseudoscience. I have a bunch of notes on here. We may not get through all of them. And some of these I may go through really quickly just to make a couple of points on. Others I may spend a little bit longer on. So let's go into... So for someone that doesn't really know anything about the paranormal, wants to get in it, let's start from, okay, what are the traits of a paranormal researcher? You don't need a license. Like, for example, you don't like doctors, you don't need a license to practice it. Should, is, is that going to happen one day? Maybe, maybe not, probably not, but you don't need a license. But there are certain traits that can really go a long way in helping someone be a successful investigator. Now, whether you're an engineer or a teacher or a social worker or a lab technician, whatever, if you're, if you want to get involved in the paranormal and you're passionate about it, then you're going to bring something to the table and that's the beauty of it. But there are certain traits that I have um, noted down here that I think can really apply to uh, a lot of successful investigators. Okay. So the professionalism aspect, right? the respect aspect you it's not all fun and games it's not like you're just going and prancing around a cemetery at night with the thrill-seeking mindset and that's it if you want to partake in an actual on-site investigation at someone's home or a business or a historical site you need to know how to be professional right this is common sense you have to respect that property your uh, the the the, his, the historians at that property, your teammates, and of course the spiritual inhabitants that you're working with, right? 
And then there's the passion aspect. You want, you should have to want a desire, so to speak, to get involved in this field. If you're wanting, let's say, for example, someone wants to get involved in the field just because they want to get on TV and that's it, probably not going to last long. So working with people, you're working with a team of people. Some teams are larger, some like mine, it's just basically two or three people and that works for us. But you're working with different people, not just your team, but your clients and with businesses, managers, historical curators, things like that, people like that. So you should have the knowledge and you should be able to be a collective person and work collaboratively, right? Leave that ego at the table. I know we all have ego, but... Ego doesn't serve paranormal research, right? Pretty common sense. And then, of course, the honesty aspect, the humility aspect, the commitment is another one. Because a lot of people don't realize the time and effort that it takes for one investigation. Now, if it's a case study and you're there many months to weeks, you're going to have more to go through. But if it's just a one-night case study, let's say you have eight hours at the Star of India, for example, uh, well, you have the interviews that you do beforehand. You may do some historical, you should do some historical research before, during, and after. And then let's get to the, your data review. So let's say you have four audio recorders that are recording eight hours. Well, that's 32 hours right there of audio review. Let's say you have 16 IR cameras all going at, you know, eight hours. That's all those hours of, of camera review and, and all of that. So this takes time. So you have to have the commitment. And then of being able to, to accept that constructive criticism, you know, P, teammates, you may, when debriefing and going through data, you know, let's say, for example, you may have one teammate that disagrees on what's being said in a certain EVP, whereas other members may hear something else. So, so, so being able to, to accept and give that constructive feedback. And then of course, having that open, healthy, uh, mindset and it's okay to have a healthy dose of skepticism. So I wanted to just bring that up. I know some of this may sound a little boring, but I feel it's important. And then of course, you know, for for those that want to get into the paranormal, I'm looking at the time and I can tell we're not going to get through all of this, but that's okay. We'll have a part two and a part three. Why not? So getting back to those that let's say, okay, want to get into the paranormal but they're really not sure. Maybe they have an interest in ghosts and hauntings, but they're also interested in ufology. Well, there's nothing that says you can't do both, right? But for those that don't know the different branches, just a little bit about them. So the main ones. So we have psi phenomena, okay? So the mind's ability to practice extrasensory perception. So you have that precognition, psychokinesis falls into that. Uh, I'm going through this really quickly, ufology, the study of uh, alien species and uh, UFOs, so extraterrestrials, obviously that's pretty self-explanatory. Psychic mediumship kind of, I mean, can correlate with the psi as well. So the practice of using intuition and uh, channeling the spirit realm. So you have, you know, clairvoyance, claircognizance, clairaliance, uh, let's see, clairsentience, I'm uh, let's see what else, Claire Gustins, and I think there's one more that I'm forgetting, but the practice of, of channeling spiritual energies, right? So these are kind of some of the different, different branches here, so to speak. Uh, cryptozoology is a big one. So uh, the study of inter, what we think are interdimensional beings or animals that are said to exist, but have not been proven scientifically. So for example, trolls, um, Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, the Mothman, uh, let's see, the Dogman, 
And then in with that is, you know, the, the classifications of the different elementals and things like that. Uh, let's see. And then this is interesting. I love this. So the interdimensional hypothesis states this. It's an idea advanced. Now, I should have stated this back when I mentioned uh, ufology, but I'll state it now. So it's an idea advanced by ufologists such as Jock. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. I think it's Bali, I think, that says unidentified flying objects, of course, are UFOs and related events involve visitations from other realities or dimensions that coexist separately, but alongside our own. So I thought that was pretty cool to mention. And then, of course, demonology, study of uh, demons and demonic beings. And of course, the occult, which is pretty much an, an overall study of the supernatural, mystical, magical beings uh, in certain practices. And then, of course, you have what I tend to prefer to specialize in. Uh, no, I'm no expert. I, I'm one of these that doesn't like to go with that term. Oh, I'm an expert. Some people think like, well, an expert means someone that is devoted a long time to a, a specific type of study. And so therefore, they're an ex expert. I can see that. I really can. But I don't profess to be an expert in the paranormal just because the paranormal hasn't been proven. So who am I to say that I'm an expert? No, I'm not. So anyways, but I tend to specialize in the whole ghosts, spirits, and, and hauntings arena. That's just what I prefer. And that's what I've done uh, for um, a long time here for about 20 years. So uh, since the dawning of time now, there have been various religions, various cultures that have had this belief in the unknown, a belief in, in different um, entities, different ghosts, uh, spirits, that sort of thing. So it goes back thousands of years. But one uh, pretty much movement that really, I would say, catapulted it and moved the field forward was spiritualism. So just, I mean, a whole, I mean, I could do a, like a whole year on spiritualism, anyone could, but this is just the, the basics of it and what led from that is this is the development of the Society for Psychical Research, which is still in practice today. And uh, a lot of current modern day investigations and their protocols and standard operating procedures are taken from what was used and what is used with SBR. So spiritualism, it was a new religious movement in the, I think it was like around 1840 to 1920, where people felt that ghosts and spirits of the deceased existed and could communicate with the living. So it started in, I think it was like in the upstate, western central regions of New York. And so there were early, earlier religious movements. I think Millerism was one of them, Mormonism that emerged during the Second Great Awakening. So many people who resided in this area of upstate New York believed in this direct contact with God and angels. So you, I mean, the two probably most famous individuals, so one of, I would say one of the two, two famous, I would say, I, I linked them together because they were sisters, obviously the Fox sisters, because they lived in, in I think, Hydesville, New York, it was. And so they were instrumental in the entire spiritualist movement, later claimed to admit that a lot of what they were doing was, of course, fraudulent, but it got several people, and there were other individuals very prominent in the spiritualist movement, but those are two that I can think of uh, because they, they lived in New York. So there are three aspects of spiritualism that I think still apply to this day. So they feel that the afterlife is a place where spirits can grow and evolve, right? That's part one. 
part two, they felt that contacting energy, spiritual energies is possible and that spirits are more advanced than humans. And three, spirits can relay helpful knowledge and information about morals, ethics, and God. So a lot of people started uh, really having this interest in, in, in the realm. And of course, we know that with spiritualism, a lot of fraud happened, uh, even with photography, for example, spirit photography, the whole ectoplasm, all of that. I mean, I can do a whole like five different episodes, like I said, on spiritualism. That's the bare bones. But the point is, is that I want to say is that was a movement that really catapulted people into wanting to investigate more, uh, the paranormal more. And so, like I said, the Society for Psychical Research was developed from that. And so uh, it was formed in London, I believe in 1882. It was the first scientific organization to examine claims of psi phenomena, PSI phenomena, and paranormal uh, experiences. So it was formed to try and disprove the fraudulence that was going on during the spiritualist movement. And so they used various different scientific disciplines. And so they investigated uh, claims of telepathy, intuition, apparitions, hauntings, phantasms of the living, I think was its, um, I'm trying to remember, I know Frank Podmore was one of the authors, there's I think one more author, it was like a, it was a whole uh, book series written that I've had that something like 700 plus personal psi experiences that were collected to make that book. So obviously, the organization was established as a scientific framework for the study of anomalous phenomena that's still being adopted in today's research. So you can go to its website. I have it written down here. It's www.spr.ac.uk. And so you can, there's all kinds of resources on that website, uh, lots of different. So if you're writing a book or anything like that, that's a, that's a good website to go to. So that was, that's basically what I wanted to mention from that is so, you know, from spiritualism, we had the SPR developed and even in today, today's modern research is still adopting scientific methods and disciplines used from the SPR. Okay. So kind of going back here, uh, let's see, uh, so let's, like I said earlier, I specialize, just it's more of a preference, but I specialize in the, the ghost spirits and hauntings, I guess, discipline of the entire supernatural research umbrella. So a lot of us, we get asked the question all the time, what are ghosts and spirits? Now I'm going to say this, if I sat here and said, well, I absolutely know what a ghost is and I absolutely know what a spirit is, well... Would I be a fraud? No, but I would probably be a little overconfident. So, you know, it's, it's, in, and I still do this. It's very easy to interchangeably use the word ghost and spirit. I do it all the time, but technically we think that there are some differences. So when you think of a ghost, another word for that is an earthbound. So it's an entity that of course has died, that has physically died, but maybe hasn't moved on to maybe the spirit level and is somehow still tied to this mortal realm for whatever reason. Maybe it's five reasons. Maybe it's one reason. Maybe it's by choice. Maybe uh, the individual died a very tragic death and sadly doesn't know that he or she has passed. Or maybe there's a, a specific antique or location that um, a specific earthbound is drawn to and doesn't want to leave. So it's an individual case-by-case -case basis in terms of the reasons why earthbounds haven't evolved. So uh, ghosts equate to earthbounds. That's kind of what many researchers think, and I agree. Uh, now you have spirit, which, of course, is the energy. 
of someone that has passed on, right? We know that. But this individual isn't necessarily tied to the mortal realm and is free to move on through the different ranks of spirit or yeah, spirithood, excuse me, and then can come back at free will. So that's kind of a differentiation between just general ghosts and spirits. That's kind of how I like to look at it. I'm guilty. I, to this day, I'm guilty with using the words interchangeably. And so moving on from that, you know, signs of a haunting, I don't think you have one location. Let's say there's like 10 locations that you've investigated. Are they all going to be the same? Absolutely not. Are they going to have similarities and differences? Absolutely. So when you look at signs of a haunting, uh, they're I mean, some of the common ones are, and I want to preface this by let's let's look at history. You do see a theme with the more historical the site is, the greater the chance of it having consistent paranormal activity, which gets into, well, what about a haunting? Are all places that have paranormal activity, are all those places haunted? Not in my opinion. For me to classify a location as actually being haunted there has to be some sort of historical connection on the, the for the energies that are there. They have to be in some way or another historically tied to the property, number one. And number two, the activity has to be occurring consistently. That's just my opinion. So you can have places that you may investigate that may have transient paranormal activity, but not aren't necessarily categorized as haunted. But with places that do have paranormal activity, some of the common uh, signs, of course, with like I said, with history being a primary foundation, obviously unexplained noises and sounds, uh, you know, with old homes and things like that, you want to rule out that it's settling of the home or any sort of plumbing issues or anything like that. Um, this is one of the reasons why I don't prefer investigating like apartments just because if let's say it's an apartment building that has eight separate units and I'm in only investigating one of those units, I'm missing out on seven eighths, you know, the majority of the rest of the building. So, and then you have the vibration situation and all of that. Uh, let's see, um, electrical plumbing issues are, that can be a sign. Uh, and then you get into the whole, which we'll get into in a little bit, the whole EMF factor, electromagnetic field, you know, faulty wiring, high EMF can, uh, be almost a, it's theorized to be a capacitor for paranormal activity or vice versa. That paranormal activity can almost influence EMF. Um, unexplained shadows are a big one. That's a commonality. You may see something peripherally. You may see a full bodied apparition. You may say, may see a, um, a, a partial apparition. I've seen that a couple of times, even on the, for example, the queen Mary, I've seen twice the shoulders and above, for example, I've seen just, the bottom, like half of a person, two legs. Uh, so shadow energies peripherally are very, very common. Items may disappear and reappear. So I, I call it the apport theory. Um, inf we're going to get into infrasound in a little bit. Um, psychokinetic energy we'll get into. So I'm going to skip that. But antiques, uh, I think investigating places that have a lot of antiques that's a lot of fun and I'm actually you know it's weird I used to be one of those as a little kid and even now as an adult I can go into an antique store and almost for me I get that I almost get a sense of vertigo and sometimes nausea so I tend to be sensitive so maybe I'm picking up on some of the residual energy tied to these antiques hold on but places that have a lot of antiques are like history 
it's just it's a prime foundation for uh, paranormal activity odd animal behavior so if you're doing private residence cases and you have clients you know in your client interview state that their cat or their dog for example acts weird maybe the dog goes and sits in a corner and stares up at the ceiling barks at the ceiling you know i've had cases where people have said their cat can be just sitting on the couch and all of a sudden just the tail gets all fat with fur the fur stands up and they just run out of the room for no reason so odd animal behavior um I have on here hypnagogia, hypnopompic. That's kind of a, a state of sleep. So it's is it really a classification or a sign of a haunting? Not really, but a lot of people, at least for me that I've seen, and we'll take a break in three minutes. I'm looking at the time, but I can get to this in three minutes. So a lot of emails that we get are from people that seem to fit, I would say, the sleep paralysis phenomenon. And so I was just on a show today. I was actually a guest on the Red, White, and Bruise. It's a local San Diego podcast. And we were talking about sleep paralysis and how it's thought to be a psychological, physiological phenomenon, but that it mimics paranormal activity in the sense that people feel like they can't move. They may have hallucinatory events happen where they see uh, figures at the foot of their bed, sometimes full-bodied apparitions. Now that most likely is probably a psychological event due to that state of sleep. There's issues with the REM and non-REM states, or maybe they're just falling asleep. So you're in that hypnagogic state where you're awake and going to sleep. That's happened to me before where I've had sleep paralysis in that state, or it can happen in the hypnopompic state, which is when you're asleep and you're slowly starting to wake up. So, but I, I, you know, I wonder that if it, maybe the possibility of maybe, okay, you have a, a sleep paralysis episode and that the majority of it can maybe be explained medically or psychologically, but does maybe a paranormal incident is happening along with it? You know, uh, the host of the show I did today raised a good point. He said, you know, maybe just that state of sleep that we're in, maybe that helps us in terms of viewing you know through the veil a little bit more so the doorways opened a little bit more so we're less inhibited so to speak so i thought that was interesting so uh that's why i mentioned those two and then of course uh one of my theories it's not really a theory it's not fact per se but it's more an observation i feel that and there's probably many reasons for this and many elusive reasons that i don't yet know more and more people are open to sharing their experiences with spirit more and more people are interested in, in learning about the paranormal. So I think that that's connecting our world and the spirit world and even other dimensions, because I feel like that there might be a matrix going on and that all these different dimensions might be connected in some way or another. So I think for various reasons, we're seeing this cosmic shift where it's bringing together the living world and other dimensions, hence why more and more people are interested and vice versa. And then, of course, um, on this note, we'll take a break because I have tulpas and thought projections, which we'll get to later, and, and then some other signs when we get back. So we're going to take our actually our first and only break tonight. And of course, you're tuning into the Afterlife Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Strickland. So stay tuned and we will be right back, guys. Need some water.
Brandon Wainwright is an animal lover, author, energy healer, and former police officer. In April of 2018, he and his family lost their dog Tyson to a brain tumor. It was an inevitable experience that comes with being a pet owner, but it was devastating nonetheless. Tyson's Gift How an 8-pound canine became a man's greatest spiritual guide. In the story of Tyson's life, from his entry into the lives of Brandon and his wife Misha, to his equally impactful departure and continued spiritual influence, Tyson's beautiful story will entertain and comfort readers of all backgrounds. Get your copy at Tyson'sGift.com. That's Tyson'sGift.com or wherever books are sold. From its beginnings, Eust was created to unleash the excellence of nature's healing powers and bring them to people everywhere. With almost 90 years in the market, they are considered a worldwide pioneer in complete herbal wellness therapy. All Swiss Eust products are natural, essential oil-based, pleasant, and harmonious. They are extracted from plants and herbs with the latest technology to ensure the best results. Swiss Eust Live Healthy with Consultant Stephanie will guide you in the right direction to find the perfect essential products just for you. For example, have an upset tummy? Try our soothing chamomile that has not only been used by many, but trusted for years. Keep in mind, you just can't get these amazing oils at your local shopping center. They're just too special. For that, you need a connection. And that connection is Stephanie. Want some? Then head on over to Facebook and search Swiss Used Live Healthy. That's Swiss Used Live Healthy. And contact Stephanie today. Okay, 32 minutes past the hour. Of course, you're tuning back into the Afterlife Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Strickland, on the WLTKDB network. You guys know the site, WLTKDB.com. Of course, I'm just now seeing some comments. Uh, Linda, nice to see you. Uh, and yes, it's very sad about the DeFeo family. It's, it's, it's tragic, but that was last show, but terribly tragic. And then of course, Ashley popped in host of uh, realm of darkness. Excellent show. Again, they were talking about the Amityville horror, uh, the show right before mine with guest Matt of his team. Let's see. I think it's the Warren para Explorer society. So great show. If you missed it, it will be archived for you. And then of course I have here, uh, Tony says, okay, hello. My lamps keep flickering. How would I know if this is a spirit in which spirit, number one, and then also waking up in the middle of sleep, have a full conversation in sleep mode and don't remember anything. So uh, thanks for sharing that, Tony. So, uh, you know, it's hard to know with, with electronics. It's very easy to sometimes think that flickering lights, and it could be a sign of maybe transient paranormal activity, but often it's mostly often having to do with the electrical wiring. So definitely get your, uh, wiring checked in your house and then two there's sometimes there's circuit issues and we've had cases where um we've done private residence cases and we've determined that okay if you're on a similar circuit with your next door neighbor they can let's say you have maybe 
a lamp on or a ceiling fan, for example, that's off in your living room. And then all of a sudden your next door neighbor goes with his or her remote to turn on the TV. If it's on the same circuit as yours, maybe it'll tr uh, trigger your lamp to going on. So that could be an issue as well. Or maybe it could be paranormal activity. Now that's interesting. So having a full on conversation in the middle of sleep, but then waking up and maybe not remembering anything. I mean, that, I mean, it, it's hard to know. I would want to know more specifics of the dream, but it could be just a, 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 a simple uh, subconscious processing dream, or it could be that maybe you were in fact channeling someone when you were asleep. It's thought that in our sleep mode, we're less inhibited. So it's easier. It's thought that it's easier for the spirit realm to contact us when we're sleeping. Uh, and so you, a lot of times we will have those very profound us, what I call spirit communication dreams, or even like astral projection dreams, where let's say, and I've had this with, with my cat Kaylee, who passed in December, right after her passing, I was having these almost astral projection type dreams, where I would, in the dream, I was in the same room that I was falling asleep in. So it was my bedroom. And then in the dream, I had about five of these dreams where I would actually dream of being in my bedroom, same time of night, it was dark, I was in my bed and then feeling my cat Kaylee coming up on the bed and having that, that um, sensation of, you know, seeing and visiting with Kaylee. So that could be, um, could be what's going on. Um, you just said here, popping in here. Let's see here. No dream. My husband said that I sat up and was talking to someone. Okay. Um, well, let's see. I mean, I don't know. It could be maybe that you were uh, channeling someone, but if you were in the middle of a sleep, that, I mean, if you were in the middle of a sleep, I mean, it could, that to me, maybe, maybe you were dreaming and don't remember it. I don't know. I'd, I'd want a little bit more information on that to make, you know, a, to fully uh, discuss that. Um, so feel free to contact me. But anyways, let's see here. Moving on, because I have a bunch of different notes. Okay, so let's get into uh, more of, for those that want to break into the field of the paranormal. So let's say... Okay, they, they have that interest, but now they want to just go full force. They're like, yep, I want to buy some equipment. I want to join a team and they want to go for it. So here are some things that I would tell people beforehand. I would ask yourself why. If you really have that innate curiosity about the unknown, maybe you've had a lot of experiences thus far and you really want to investigate the field, that's great. But I would ask yourself why, if you're getting into the field for, for other reasons, maybe, and I used this as an example earlier, but maybe someone just wants to, to uh, get into the paranormal because they want to be on TV and that's it. Or maybe there's other, some other just frivolous reason. Then I would say, well, maybe, maybe think about it a little bit more, maybe go on maybe one or two cases, uh, interview a paranormal team, things like that to decide and then that leads me into what I just said. So if you're interested, but really not sure, take some time and interview different teams. Take some time on wherever you are. And you don't even, you can interview teams that are not local to you. But if you're in a, in a city or town that has, you know, a couple of different teams, take the time, you know, go on their website, spend some time on their website, talk with them. If they, maybe they lead tours, maybe you can uh, take one of their tours. Maybe there's uh, conferences in the area. Uh, that you can go to paranormal conferences. And that's great because then you get to meet people from all over the place and um, people that specialize in different areas of the paranormal. So uh, talk to people. 
And then, uh, then if you're really, you know, after that, you're like, you know what, I'm going for it. That's it. I'm going for it. Volunteer on a paranormal research team or join a paranormal meetup group. Now, meetup groups can be nice. They're mostly discussion-based groups, but, but a lot of times they do go out and do little investigations. One in San Diego that's really great is the uh, uh, SD Gap, so San Diego Ghost and Paranormal Meetup Group. And so they meet in Old Town. Uh, I think it's, oh my gosh, I don't know what their schedule is now with, with COVID going on, but very active, lots of members. And so you can meet with like-minded people. And then, of course, uh, if you want to join a paranormal team, take the time, go through their websites, get an idea of the type of team they are. If you're one of those uh, that is more inclined to the metaphysical or maybe the psychic side, maybe you want to join a team that primarily works from the psychic mediumship angle. Let's say you're um, maybe an engineer, or maybe you're more uh, drawn to the scientific side. Maybe you want to join a team that strictly adheres to the science side. Now, for me personally, there's no right or wrong. But for me personally, I like to blend the two. So I like to blend the science aspect. A lot of people cringe at that word used in the paranormal, but I'm using it in this case, the science aspect with the metaphysical aspect. I think blending those two gives you a more wider perspective and a more holistic approach to to the paranormal. And then, of course, there are numerous books on the subject, books everywhere. So books, uh, like I said, attend to paranormal-themed conferences and events, radio shows, podcasts, such as, I mean, this one. There are many other shows on the network, on WLTKDB, for example. All great hosts, all great shows. So take the time to, to really... Um, go through those because even, I mean, for researchers like myself, when I hear other people and I hear my colleagues talk, I will learn things that I didn't know, or maybe they'll say something that really, you know, sparked my interest and makes me think about something a little bit deeper. So there goes that collaboration and that collectivity that I was mentioning earlier. And then of course, this goes along the line sometimes with conference, obviously with conferences, you're going to have lectures and presenters, but sometimes in your area, libraries, for example, may have paranormal investigators come and present. So for example, in San Diego, I presented at, at many libraries and other businesses. I have one coming up in this at the Escondido Public Library where I'm talking about the Star of India, the Berkeley Ferry Boat, part of the Maritime Museum of San Diego, and of course the RMS Queen Mary. It's part of its summer reading program. It's Oceans of Possibilities, but they're titling my presentation Oceans of Paranormal. So just you know, be on the lookout for those different uh, paranormal-themed presentations. And then, of course, Shadow a paranormal investigator. So if you're going to volunteer with the team or become a member of a team, obviously you will be investigating with that team. But let's say you're not really a full-fledged member yet. They may want you to shadow them, maybe on one or two cases, do that and get an idea. So those are uh, some of my, my, uh, my input for the night. I'm sure there's others that I'll think about later, but those are some of the big ones. And then just some other pointers too. Uh, I kind of alluded to this a little bit ago, but types of teams. Now, every team is different because, you know, there are different people on the team. There are different personalities with different backgrounds. But what I'm alluding to is what I said earlier. Some groups adhere more toward the science end. So they're paying strict attention to what their equipment is saying and analyzing what's going on on the investigation and how it pertains to what their data is telling them. 
uh, whether it's environmental mon monitoring data, photographic data, video data, whether it's full spectrum, infrared, audio data, and that sort of thing. And then there are groups that are more along the line of using metaphysical uh, approaches or more more psychic mediumship sort of angle. So, and then there are those like mine that blend the two. So I would uh, find your strengths, what fits for you. And then uh, that can kind of help you decide, you know, what, what group is right for you. But I, with that said, if you're wanting to join a research group and you're out there looking on the internet and you're interviewing different teams, it's, it's an intuitive thing. You'll feel drawn to the team that you want to be a part of, if that makes sense. Um, so you kind of just have to trust your gut on it. And then uh, the whole the whole skepticism versus cynicism thing, I think, can sometimes those words can be used interchangeably. They're different. So it is important for every single investigator out there, whether you're new, whether you're seasoned, meaning that you've been in the field for a long time, whatever. It's healthy to have that good balance of open-mindedness and skepticism. A lot of people think, well, if you're a skeptic, that means you don't believe. That's not true. You're just being skeptical, meaning you're you're wanting maybe a little bit more. Proof isn't the word to use in the paranormal, but you're wanting a little bit more to go by before you make a decision. And then you have the complete cynic cynicism angle. I mean, you can have someone that sees a full-bodied apparition that maybe talks to them and says, uh, hi, how are you? My name is John. And will still be like, nope, I didn't see that. I didn't hear that. So cynicism, skepticism are two different things. And then we kind of went along the lines of intuitive versus science. Another point too to make is that there is, <laughs> are no, there's no such thing as a ghost detector at all. you right. I mean, we watched the movie Ghostbusters and all of that. And, you know, with the proton packs and all of that, but there is no such thing as a ghost detector. There are devices, environmental monitoring devices that we used based on theories. So, for example, it's theorized that higher EMF levels can produce and or influence paranormal activity. Right. So therefore, we use EMF meters. It is theorized that theorize in the sense that we don't know for sure if a temperature drops that a ghost is is there but it's theorized that when temperatures drop that spiritual energies can pull the heat out from the environment thus dropping the temperature so that's why we use for example ambient thermometers and that sort of thing so but there's no such thing as a ghost detector the best piece of equipment out there is yourself so become attuned to your senses, we all have them, right? I think everyone is psychic. Some people are more maybe equipped to recognize it than others. It's, it's like I said, I, I talk about this on presentations. It's almost like a game of soccer or a sport. The more you practice, the more you dribble, the more you kick, the better your skills will be. So in this field, the more you're out there investigating, the more that you're exposed to it, you will find that your natural senses, intuitive senses are going to strengthen. I know I can say that for myself over the last uh, 20 years. I've, and I've always been intuitive, but I found, wow, you know, geez, you know, I'm, I'm more clairaudient than I used to be. I'm more clairvoyant than I used to be. So really, really pay attention to yourself. And then of course, like I said earlier, there are no experts in the field, although I can see what I mean by that is, you know, how can someone profess to be an expert in something that hasn't yet been proven? That's the angle I'm going with. But someone can say, well, 
wow, you know, you've spent 20 years in the field. Johnny, you've spent 20 years in the field and you've been out there many times. I consider you an expert. I can see that angle, but I'm going with the, well, this is a gray field. It's not black and white. So there hasn't, ghosts haven't been proven. I'm not out to prove them, right? That's not my goal. So I'm going from that angle. How can I profess or anyone profess to be an expert in something that hasn't been proven? So, okay. So that's, those are those pointers. And I'm looking at the time. My goodness, we're going to have to have a three-parter on this folks. And that's fine. Okay. So kind of moving along with that. And this kind of like, kind of follows the, the previous radio show and, and talking about the Amityville horror case and really uh, looking at it from a, an honest, accurate, you know, professional, analytical uh, way is, okay, let's, when you look at paranormal investigators, I kind of see them, well, I shouldn't say paranormal investigators, I look at people that are into the paranormal field. And sometimes you see where it's broken off into two groups. There's the ghost hunter mentality and the paranormal researcher mentality. I'm not talking about people that have the words ghost hunters in their team name. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the psychological mindset between, let's say, someone who is only interested in going out and thrill seeking and nothing more. That's it. They want to go out at night. They want to walk around a cemetery, for example, just to get spooked. And that's all they want. Well, that, there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely not. But that individual cannot call himself or herself a paranormal researcher because with paranormal research, you may still have that desire to get thrills and chills with the work you do, but you're committed to doing a lot of the work that a paranormal researcher does that a thrill seeker by itself won't do. So all of the hours of, let's say, interviewing your clients, and there might be usually more than one, sometimes there's five to 10. There may be all kinds of witnesses that you need to interview. There are different areas of research. You have the historical research that you're doing. You may need to do archaeological research. You may need to do geological research, for example. Like one example I have is the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, Colorado. So there's this piezoelectric effect with it because of the limestone on the property. That's one of the theories that for why it's thought to be so paranormally active is because of that limestone being underneath where the property sits, of course. So geological research, uh, 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 genealogical sometimes you may need to do. And so that takes time. Then, like I said earlier, doing, you know, the entire investigation, or if you're at a case study, you're doing more than one investigation over a set period of time. So you have the equipment set up and breakdown. You have the different uh, experiments that you're going to do. You're, you're going to have vigils where you're sitting in the dark, letting your senses get attuned to the environment several times during the investigation. You'll have EVP work. You'll have sometimes for those teams that enjoy doing ITC, instrumental transcommunication work. You'll have different cameras and, and other types of devices that you're monitoring. So there's all of that. And then after that comes the tedious process of data review where you're spending time going through the audio, looking at the photographs, going through them and saying, wow, okay, here are our baseline photographs that we took before the investigation. Let's compare those with all of the photographs we took during the investigation. Uh, even same with video. You may video have baseline video to go by and then you're comparing that to all of the video uh, 
that uh, was recorded during the investigation, whether you're using static cameras or whether you're using an IR DVR system or whether you're using an IR trap camera or all three. So there's all of this data processing and data analysis to go through. And then you're seeing where, okay, all these personal experiences that all the investigators had, uh, you're looking at those, you're looking at maybe someone's intuitive uh, inclinations. And it's, it's always preferable if you are writing down intuitive or psychic impressions to just write those down to be shared later to avoid bias and power suggestion. So you're having personal experiences, you're having psych potential psychic experiences, you're having the graphing of all your e uh, environmental monitoring. So your temperature, your EMF, for example, your vibration, things like that. And then all of your audio and photos and video, and you're going through all of that and you're trying to piece together to see if there's any connections. Like, for example, wow, okay, so according to our EMF data logger, at 9.02 p.m., there was this massive EMF spike in the master bedroom. Okay, well, Johnny, at 9.02 and 15 seconds, captured this phenomenal Class A EVP. Is it possible that the EMF spike and the EVP are connected? Quite likely. So you're going through all of that and trying to piece together the puzzle. And then sometimes historical, well, not sometimes it should be historical research and all that adjunct research that you're doing should occur during and after the investigation as well, because you may find some other tidbits of information during the investigation that you want to verify with hist historical archives, for example. So then you have all of that, and then you're meeting either with the client. So whether it's a private residence client or whether it's a business client or a historical client, and you're going through all of that. And then, of course, your case report writing. Now, a case report shouldn't, you know, I'm not saying write a book or anything, but it should uh, be a pretty, you know, clear summary of the results that you got. And um, we have a we have a whole form that we use for that. Um, so there's all of that and more that you have to do. So that's kind of, uh, you know, that's that falls under the paranormal researcher mentality versus just the thrill seeker. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to be a thrill seeker, but kind of you get my drift. So um, so we have about seven minutes left. So of course, th this will be a three parter. I just want to quickly talk to about the whole uh, and it's, it's interesting. So Ali Schreiber, dear friend of mine, team co director, she came up with this term, she calls it paratainment, get it paranormal entertainment, joined together, right? Paratainment. And so we're, I'm seeing kind of this shift. And I think people are realizing um, that, you know, paranormal television can, I mean, there's pros and cons to having it. Let me just say that. And I think that people are realizing that entertainment Hollywood, so to speak, can really influence the paranormal research area in, in some negative ways. It can be beneficial, but that we're starting to see how it can be, um, influencing and how it can be, uh, you know, affecting the, the field in ways that we don't want it to affect. Uh, so, you know, some things I thought of, you know, there's like this shift in our collective outlook regarding, you know, Hollywood and, and entertainment's treatment of the paranormal. And so we're starting to realize, okay, may, you, know, there, you know, maybe it's just not as worthwhile as we thought it was. And so I think there's this realization, more and more people are realizing that sensationalism does little to really advance the field of paranormal research. And um, 
spirit resolution, so to speak. And then, like I said earlier, this cosmic shift that's bringing together our world with the spirit realm and, and even these other inter interdimensional uh, um, areas and things like that. So, uh, and then I think people are starting to go beyond just the investigation and, and really making that connection with the energies that they're, that they're working with. And so there's this shift in that. And so more and more people I think are, are a wanting that connection, maybe wanting to see how they can maybe assist or offer a resolution to the energies that they're working with. Um, and then, uh, vice versa, being open to the spirit world or worlds, if you will, maybe offering us some tips and suggestions, because let's think about it. We live in a very challenging society. Every day, I can't watch the news anymore. Every day, there's people doing stupid things. People are hurting each other. People are killing each other. You're hearing this, you're hearing that. And it's just, it, we live in a very challenging world. And so I, you know what, I believe that the spirit realms up there and the beings that are higher evolved are looking down and are offering us assistance. I do believe that some may not, that's fine, but that's my belief. So with that said, I'm trying to think here. So of course, like I said, we're going to have a three, looks like a three-parter of this. So I think next time I'll get more into talking about, so the San Diego Paranormal Research Society's investigation process from start to finish and kind of how we do that and examining all the different influences and or potential causes of paranormal activity, getting into things like um, psychokinesis, infrasound, tulpas and thought projections, uh, well, suggestibility and bias I talked a little bit about, uh, quantum physics and how that may or may not apply to the paranormal, things like that, getting into um, pareidolia, apophenia, so more the investigative side and then talking about the methodologies and going more in detail about EVP, instrumental transcommunication, um, paranormal vigils, uh, using different metaphysical tools, things like that, spirit photography, all of that. So the Estes method um, and then tips on on reviewing that type of data. So that'll be for future episodes, probably a, a a three-parter getting into, um, you know, the orb debate, uh, orbs, you know, are you a believer in orbs? Are you not, uh, all about that and the iPhone droid phenomenon and how a lot of times people are sent emails of, of pictures that are allegedly of ghosts and spirits, but you can be able to, with some research, find out that, you know, someone has an iPhone and they have those little ghost apps and they just superimposed a, an image of, you know, a little ghost on, on their picture, things like that. So, so really getting more into that and then videography. Um, and then of course, some of the metaphysical uh, devices too, like pendulums, scrying. Um, let's see what else. Um, Ouija boards to use or not to use automatic writing, things like that. So uh, that'll be for next time, probably the second and third part, whenever I schedule that, probably sometime in July or August. So with that said, it's already Thursday. So the weekend is coming up. I have a couple more minutes. Let's see here. I am having on next week. So I'm having on Robert Lindsay. He's a psychic medium. So he's on next week. And then on June 23rd, I'm having a Henry San Miguel. So he is the... Uh, 
the director of the OC Orange County Paracon. And so host Pete Orbea of Paranormal Pete and I are going to be speakers at that event. So that's October 1st and 2nd at the Senesta Hotel in Anaheim. So we're looking forward to that. If you go to um, OC Paracon on Facebook at OC Paracon, and I believe it's ocparacon.com is the website. You can find out more information about that. Uh, Psychic medium Kelly Brickle is on June 30th. And then getting into July, I have Greg Koss on the 7th, Mike Ricksecker on July 14th, Lindsey Brown on the 21st, and then Matthew Stapley, another uh, accomplished psychic medium on July 28th. So that is the lineup for the next month and a half or so. So I hope some of you found at least a tidbit of information valuable tonight hopefully more but it's okay if you didn't but um it was fun talking about it i hope you guys have a wonderful weekend and of course here at the afterlife chronicles we are exploring the connection between life death and beyond and bridging that gap between mortality and the afterlife one experience at a time we will see you next week and have a great night and a great weekend Bye bye